receive the glory, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated, and I'd like to invite Frank Sindler to come up and to minister God's word to us today. Thank you, brother. I'll have you uh, turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 28. I don't know how many missions conferences uh, someone has preached on Matthew 28 at, but I assume it's going to be a lot of them. So it's a very familiar passage for you. Um, We'll be reading uh, starting in verse 16 through 20. So Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's a very familiar passage, as I, as I mentioned. It's in the book of Matthew. Matthew is one of the Gospels primarily written to the uh, Jewish people. Uh, I became a believer uh, from the Jewish faith, and part of what God used to draw me to faith in Christ was I read first in the Old Testament and became intrigued about the passages that seemed to talk about Christ. Uh, and then I, I ventured out to read in the New Testament, and I really didn't know where to read, but I picked the book of Matthew because it sounded the least Gentile-like of all the books of the Gospels, and um, read that. And then the book of Hebrews, and actually prayed to receive Christ on my own reading the book of Hebrews. But I remember reading the book of Matthew, first of all, as I was coming to Christ, and then later and really being struck by this passage where he says, go therefore make disciples of all nations. Now, I was naive, and I thought when Christ told the disciples that, he meant it. And therefore, (laughs) as a young college student, I remember walking from where I lived in my apartment and thinking, you know, I just have to go knock on people's doors and tell them about Jesus. But I didn't know how to do that, but I just went ahead and knocked on doors and told people I had become a believer and, um, you know, very um, untrained, uh, yet uh, feeling that God's word meant what it said. And uh, God has used that, I think, in our lives over the years uh, to lead us step by step to eventually, uh, after we had been members here at New Life for a number of years, uh, we joined here in the mid-80s and then early 90s, through a mission conference very much like this, uh, we, we came forward and committed ourselves uh, to full-time service uh, and joined mission to the world. Um, and God has been super faithful over the years uh, to lead us uh, through amazing times of ministry and seeing God pour out his spirit and draw people to himself and see this very passage, uh, making disciples of all nations, uh, coming true in our very eyes. Um, 
The immediate context here is 11 of the disciples. You know, there were 12. Uh, one of them had already betrayed him uh, and uh, led to his uh, being taken and uh, convicted and crucified and buried. Uh, so there's 11 remaining disciples at this point. They are, they've met Jesus several times and in several settings. So they know about the resurrection uh, and Jesus has told them to go to Galilee, to a mountain. It's not, we're not told what the mountain is, but um, the context of Matthew 28, 16 through 20 is the 11 disciples, all of whom <clears throat> who have already denied Christ, turned away from him. If you remember the night um, in which he was taken, uh, Peter, one of the chief uh, disciples, denied him. Um, and did it vehemently to the point that he began to curse and tell the people that, no, I don't know this man. I don't know anything about him. I've never been with him. Yet here they are uh, with Jesus on the mountain, and he's getting ready to leave, uh, and he leaves them with these words, uh, basically, that we've read um, here, uh, starting in in, in, uh, verse 18 through 20. Uh, And we see their reaction. Uh, It says, uh, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, the actual Greek language is not really clear there, and it could mean that some of them doubted, or it could mean that all of them had some doubts. And it's not really clear what the doubts were. I don't think it's relative to Jesus' resurrection, because that had already become very evident to all of them. But they are worshipping him, uh, and they're doubting. Now, the kind of doubt uh, that's talking about here is, is only used, the word is only used twice in the New Testament. It's used here in Matthew 28, and it's used back in Matthew 14. In Matthew 14, you have the, the event where Jesus had been speaking to a crowd on one side of the Lake of Galilee. He tells the disciples to send the people home and then to go in the boat across the Galilee, that he's going to go up into the and pray and he'll come and meet them on the other side of the Galilee. They encounter a big storm, uh, having a hard time getting across the lake. Uh, I, think, I think the total amount of time that Jesus is gone praying is about nine hours uh, uh, from, if you look at the account. And then he is walking across the Lake of Galilee. The disciples see him. They're afraid. Peter then realizes it's Jesus and says, if it's you, call to me and I'll come to you walking on the water. Peter, you know, he's a little impetuous, steps out of the boat, walks across the water to Jesus, but then he starts to look at the wind and the waves and begins to sink, cries out to Jesus to save him. Jesus takes his hand, and the next thing, they're in the boat, and in Matthew 14, 31, Jesus says to Peter, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And that's the same word that's used later on in Matthew 28. It's a word, uh, distazo, and it actually is better translated as why did you hesitate? Um, When I I was in seminary, uh, a professor named Knox Chamlin uh, was teaching the Gospels, and he focused on the book of Matthew, and he said this about uh, this passage. He said, um, the word used here is, is a kind of doubt, but it's better described as hesitancy. It, it's, it's a hesitancy about the adequacy of, <coughs> of Jesus to deal with frightening conditions beyond our control. 
And one thing you should notice as well, not only do the disciples doubt, (coughs) but they also, they don't ask any questions. That's very unusual uh, for the disciples. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he would teach something or do something. And usually the disciples later on, he will ask them a question or they will ask him questions about it to try to better understand it. In this instance, <coughs> they basically ask no questions at all. And uh, recently I was reading this passage in my yearly kind of read through the Bible. And in and, and the plan I was reading, it took me from Matthew straight into the book of Acts. And I began to realize, you know, the doubt that they're talking about here uh, had a big impact on how the early church history played out. Um, and in fact, the disciples really should have asked a lot of questions because it took about 20 to 25 years for them to really begin to understand what Jesus was actually asking them to do when he told them to go and make disciples of all the nations. And it's, it's not hard to understand why the apostles might have had a hard time really fully grasping what Christ meant uh, when, he, when he gave the Great Commission. They had kind of an Israel-centric view of the kingdom of God coming to the earth. Matter of fact, in Ezekiel 5, 5, <coughs> Psalm 67, verse 1 and 2, and in Isaiah 60, verse 3, if you read through those passages you'll get a better idea of kind of how probably the average first century Jewish person would have thought about the kingdom of God coming to the earth. So let me read through those for us. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with all the countries around her. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. And then finally in Isaiah, and the nations shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. So there was this idea that basically redemption would come through the nation of Israel and that the nations would then be drawn um, to the gospel uh, through that outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the nation of Israel. There really was not the idea of going out to the nations. Also, what Jesus Christ is asking the disciples to do is, is really humanly impossible. Um, I mean, not only is he talking to 11 people who, who have just basically denied him, Uh, Not the most auspicious group to really ask to to take the message of what you've done to the world. Um, But really, when you think about it, um, what he's asking them to do is is literally humanly impossible. Because we can't convert anyone. It doesn't, you know, it's not in our power to convert people. It's not in, in, in our power to give life to those who are spiritually dead. The Bible does not say that the world... The people in the world are spiritually ill and they need some just little level of healing. No, it says that we are spiritually dead and that we have to bring life to people who are dead. We can't give new hearts to those who have hearts of stone. We can't compel anyone to love or to follow Christ. 
Um, we cannot redeem, justify, sanctify, or do any of the things that are required to happen to a person for them to come into saving faith and relationship with Jesus Christ. We're simply instruments that Christ uses in order to do that. And so what Jesus does is he simply gives them the command. And it's, it's written this way. It's going, teaching, and baptizing make disciples. The, the command is to make, make disciples. And all the other things that happen basically are ways of uh, their adjectives or um, they kind of uh, uh, give you a picture of how that's going to happen. It's going to happen by going. It's going to happen by teaching. It's going to happen by baptizing. And that's how they were <clears throat> to make disciples. And Jesus, uh, you know, he's a very patient teacher. You see this in his life. He will be teaching the disciples something. Um, they're obviously not getting it. And uh, he doesn't always just sit down and explain everything to them. He gives them time to sort of understand and process, and he'll come back and then explain to them later. And he does it here, a very similar thing, is rather than to take a lot of time and try to explain to them the Great Commission and what he wants them to do, he simply surrounds it with two things. He surrounds it, first of all, with what's called the Great Affirmation. And this is Jesus' affirmation about his authority, where he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus has all authority. And uh, we're told, actually, um, you may have a question, well, uh, you know, why does he say that all authority has been given to me? Because we know that uh, in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, uh, we're told in Westminster Confession of Faith uh, that there are three persons, but one substance, one power, one eternity, uh, in the God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, so Christ has had eternity, had uh, authority from all eternity. But what he's talking about here as being given is the fact that having accomplished God's plan of redemption, uh, that Christ is given the gifts uh, in a sense that he gives to us in redemption and in salvation. And a matter of fact, and Paul talks about it in Ephesians 1, 19 through 23. He says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And Samuel Rutherford, who was one of the uh, authors of the Westminster Confession, he describes this authority that's been given to Jesus this way. It's the authority of a mediatorial king having completed God's plan of redemption as marked by the resurrection, which is the climactic vindication of Jesus' redemptive life, humiliation, and death. And so we will look at some of the things that Jesus has in terms of his authority, the nature of his authority. And one of them we'll look at is the fact that everything that we have as Christians, all spiritual blessings that we have come to us through Jesus Christ himself. And that's, that's the sense in which he's talking about having been given the authority at this, at this point after his resurrection. <clears throat> but what does um, 
Jesus' authority look like? Well, it, it is complete and total uh, authority. Jesus, we're told that Jesus is he's not just the redeemer. He's not just God incarnate. He's the creator. Colossians 1, 16 through 17 uh, talks about Christ this way. It says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So Jesus is the creator. And he's not just a theistic creator who creates the world, winds it up, and lets it go. But it, it, we're told here that all things hold together in him. So the fact that we are here today, the only reason we're here today and exist today is that we're being held in existence by the person of Jesus Christ. That's, that's a lot of authority if you think about it. Uh, Christ also controls all the little details of the natural world. Uh, matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 8, we have the situation where, again, the disciples are in a boat. Uh, there's a storm. Jesus is resting quietly. Uh, and the disciples are very upset because they're afraid they're going you know, to sink and drown. And they, and they ask Christ, don't you even care? He gets up and, and commands that the winds and the waves stop, and immediately they stop. And their reaction is this. The men marveled. It says in Matthew 8, 27, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? So Jesus governs every single detail of the natural world. Jesus has authority also over the kings and rulers and the nations. So, uh, I, you know, I don't know where you're... Where you, uh, how you see the world today in terms of where things are going politically, whether it be the, the unrest in Ukraine, um, uh, the issue with the invasion of, of Russia and Ukraine, or, or the situation that we find ourselves in the, in the West as well. But all of that is, is under the control and authority of Jesus Christ. Daniel 2, 21 and 4, 17 puts it this way. It says, he removes kings and sets up kings. He rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So the very rulers, the Roman rulers who crucified him, he brought them to power in order to be able to bring about God's plan of redemption, we could even say. And matter of fact, it, it's very clear that Jesus has authority over Satan, over the demons, over all forms of evil and sin. Luke 10, 19 says he has authority over all the power of the enemy. In Romans 8, 28, you know, we talk about how God works all things together for good uh, for those who love him. Yes, he's talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ works all things together to good for his kingdom purposes for those who are his people. And a matter of fact, in Acts 2, 23 and 24, it talks about the very act uh, in which the most heinous, the worst sin of all time was when they took Jesus, falsely accused him, and then crucified him uh, without any reason whatsoever. Uh, but it says that that was within his hands and in his control in Acts 2, 23 and 4. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised 
him up and loose the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held. In other words, God brought about redemption through man's worst sinfulness possible. And that's because he has authority over all things. And then again, as I mentioned uh, in Ephesians 1.3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then if you look throughout the scriptures and you look for passages that connect things that we receive as spiritual blessings, they all come to us through the person and the authority of Jesus Christ. So you can, and it not, not just, you know, a passage that says, um, who has blessed us in Christ, but there's a numbers of ways that the Bible says it. In Christ, in him, through Christ, through him, by whom, through whom, from whom, by himself, by his blood, of Christ, of him, from him, from whom, with Christ, with him, by me, in me, in my love, in my name, in the beloved, in the Lord, in whom, and by Christ. So we look at all those things throughout the New Testament. It's just an overwhelming number of things. As a matter of fact, everything that we receive we receive from Christ through his authority. Everything that we are, we are in Christ. Everything that we have, we have in Christ. And anything that we can do, we can do only because we are in Christ. And um, Jesus, so Jesus gives this grounds on which he's telling the disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations is his authority. But he just doesn't, he doesn't just leave it there. He links that also to his presence. And he goes on to say, uh, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So his authority is not just something that's out there. It's something that is with us day in and day out. And John Calvin talks about how his authority and his power are linked this way. He says, as Christ gave to the apostles a commission which they were unable to discharge by reliance on mere human power, he encourages them by assurance of his heavenly protection. For before promising that he would be with them, he began with declaring that he is the king of heaven and earth who governs all things by his power and authority. So his, uh, he's given the disciples this impossible job, but he's told them, you're going to do this on the basis of my authority, which is, is complete and total, and on the basis that I will go with you. And as you look at the book of Acts... And you think about uh, this passage in, in Matthew 28 and the fact that it, it describes the apostles, the disciples, as doubting or as hesitant. You begin to see that played out in the book of Acts. For instance, um, you know, uh, we see the apostles dramatically changed. And in Acts 2 4, uh, they, are, are, they are now not denying Christ anymore, but they're boldly proclaiming the gospel. As a matter of fact, 3,000 people come to faith in the first message that's preached by the apostles. This includes Jews and proselytes from many, many nations. As a matter of fact, it lists all the languages and of uh, the different groups that were there. And, you know, this, this is a fulfillment in and of itself of the Great Commission. It's more that Jewish cultural idea that they're drawing the nations to Israel. Um, and um, 
we see that, you know, Christ's authority and presence has already had a tremendous impact on the, on the apostles, men who, who really shouldn't have accomplished much at all, given, given their track record. And the fact that they doubted, even as they received the Great Commission, they're now uh, boldly proclaiming the gospel. But what we see them do is they stay in Jerusalem. They don't leave Jerusalem. There's nobody that goes anywhere until they're actually scattered by persecution. So it takes an event, again, under the control and authority of Jesus Christ to drive them out of Jerusalem to go to the nations. And as a matter of fact, the first missionary, quote unquote, that is mentioned is not one of the apostles, but it's a deacon named Philip who's driven out because of the persecution and he ends up going to the Samaritans first and then he goes to an Ethiopian God-fearer and brings the gospel to them. The next event that's uh, recorded in the book of Acts is the conversion of, of a man named Saul who was one of the chief persecutors of the church and who converts him? It's Jesus Christ himself. He has an encounter with Christ uh, a vision on the road to Damascus, and it's, it's that encounter that transforms Saul of Tarsus, one of the chief persecutors of the church, to become Paul, the great apostle. Then um, we have uh, Peter is given a special vision, and he's given a special vision. Why? So that he'll be willing to talk to a Roman centurion named Cornelius, I mean, you would have thought if Peter had heard the Great Commission, you know, go therefore make disciples of all nations, he'd have been excited, you know, to go meet with Cornelius. But he had to be given a special vision in order to prepare him to be willing to talk to a Roman about the gospel. Uh, And then about 10 years after the Great Commission is given, there's a large church, a Jewish and Gentile church that begins in the city of Antioch. And again, the apostles are still in Jerusalem. And what they do is they find someone named Barnabas and they send him to Antioch to basically figure out if what's going on in Antioch is really in keeping uh, with their understanding of the gospel, whether it's kosher, as as my my Jewish family would say. Um, And Barnabas goes to Antioch, reports back to the church that, yes, indeed, they received the same gospel The same thing is happening among the Gentiles as it is among the Jews. And then he goes and finds this man who used to be called Saul, who's now calling himself Paul. And really the whole narrative of the book of Acts shifts to Paul's missionary efforts among the Gentiles. And what this does is this creates... Um, it actually creates more conflict in the church because the church begins to wrestle with really what does, what does the Great Commission mean? What is the gospel? How does it really play out outside of the nation of Israel? And we see in Galatians chapter 2 that there ends up being a conflict between Paul and Peter over how do they relate to Gentile uh, converts. And uh, that leads to basically what's called the Jerusalem Council And it's only now about 20 to 25 years after the Great Commission was given. They were told clearly, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You know, the go parts there, the make disciples, and the all nations. All pretty clear, but they still haven't quite, you know, figured it out. They're still hesitant. There's still that same doubt that that was discussed back in, in, at the end of the book of Matthew. 
Uh, and it's finally at this point that they really come to grips uh, with what Christ is calling them to do. And eventually, um, all the apostles go outside of the nation of Israel and to the nations of the world. And, and uh, all of them, except the apostle John, are martyred in, in serving Christ that way. Um, and in the beginning of the book of Acts, it gives us a hint, really, that the book of Acts is not so much about what the apostles were doing, but it's about the continuing work of Jesus Christ through them. Acts 1, verses 1 and 2 says this, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. He's talking about the book of Luke. Until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So the, the, the intimation there is that, that Luke is writing the book of Acts not to tell us about the acts of the apostles, but about the continuing work of Jesus Christ through the church to bring about the Great Commission. Um, and, you know, we see the same hesitancy. Um, I became a believer in 1980, I think it was, yeah, at a college student, and then I met my wife in 1982. Uh, and uh, it wasn't until 1994 um, that we actually ended up joining a mission and going overseas. Now, when we first met, uh, we talked about what we wanted to do with our lives, and we both felt a call to cross-cultural ministry. Uh, my wife felt a very clear call to work with Muslims. I was not so clearly called to work with Muslims. I thought, well, as a Jewish convert, I probably would work with somebody else and we could figure out where we could go. She could work with Muslims, I'll work with somebody else. But over time, uh, and through God's providence, God called basically into full-time ministry uh, with Muslims, which we've done. Oh, really, if you go back to the time when we first came to New Life, uh, we were introduced to Anis Zaka in Philadelphia and got involved with Church Without Walls. So almost, oh, over 40 years now, I guess, or about 40 years now. Um, but it took time, and there was hesitancy about, you know, what does God want us to do? I remember uh, we probably was on the heels of a missions uh, conference like this month here that we were in our kitchen up in Stafford. I worked as an engineer at the time, and uh, we were just talking about, you know, if we're going overseas, now's the time to do it, you know. Uh, we were just getting ready probably to have our fourth child at that point. And, um, but it took time. And, um, you know, so we all have that hesitancy. Uh, and I think the church has had that hesitancy, not just in the first centuries, but continually. So if you think about last Friday was St. Patrick's Day. Patrick was one of the great missionaries of history in about 400 AD. Uh, and when Patrick, uh, Patrick became a missionary by having been taken a slave to Ireland, he escaped, came back to Great Britain, but felt called of God to go back to take the gospel to Ireland. And the church's reaction to him was, well, you're just not equipped to do that. That's not possible. You know, don't even think about doing that. But he felt, you know, so there was that hesitancy to affirm Patrick. And Patrick became one of the most effective missionaries in all history. Then William Carey, coming down later till about the 1700s, uh, and he became the father of what we call modern missions, uh, which is kind of the way 
I've gone out as a missionary. We have an, uh, an organization that, that raises funds and then they send people out to different parts of the world. Well, when William Carey had that idea, he was a shoemaker. He had a map on the wall. He was praying about the map. He was convicted specifically about this passage in Matthew 28 and felt God was calling him to go to India. And the church told him, oh, no, there's no reason for you to do that. You're you can't do anything, and if God wants to convert the heathen, he will. Um, so the church has always kind of been hesitant. Yet if you look at the way the church has grown uh, from the first century on, there has been an endless uh, increase and flow of the gospel out to the nations. And um, in 1910, I'll give you another example with Africa. In 1910, there was a consultation in Edinburgh, Scotland, and this was on the heels of many, many, many decades of missionary work in Africa. And the consultation was very, uh, they were very doubtful. They were very hesitant about what the future was to be. Matter of fact, they, they decided that, that Christianity be, would be wiped off of the continent of Africa within probably a few decades. Uh, there was only about 8 million Christians in the very far southern parts of Africa. They'd seen no progress of the gospel towards the north, and Islam was steadily flowing down, and they expected Christianity to be completely wiped off of the continent of Africa in a few years. Now, what's actually happened is that... <clears throat> um, the gospel has taken root, and now there are probably 400 million Christians on the continent of Africa. And while I've been talking this morning, probably something in the range of about 1,500 Africans have become believers and are beginning the process of discipleship and will very soon be reaching out to their neighbors and taking the gospel to others. <coughs> because the church is growing at such a rapid rate, um, that we've never seen, seen before. Robin was talking about the fact that we are in the midst of a revival, and that's true worldwide. Uh, more people are coming to faith in Christ now than ever before. In our work with Muslims, when we started to work with Muslims, it was extremely rare to ever see anybody from an Islamic background come to faith in Christ. And very quickly, uh, over the last 30 years, that has completely changed where now Muslims are embracing Christ all the time. And in our work, we went from hoping someday we would see a small church or two started in the country. We went to, uh, to planting 16 churches there and then that growing into six countries in the region uh, with numerous churches and thousands of people having come to faith in Christ to the point where now the main request we get from the Muslim world is, is not anything in terms of evangelism and basic discipleship, but it's training pastors because there's so many churches around the world. And that is simply because Christ is true to his promise that he, he, he's with us. And so, you know, looking at our ministry back in, in the early 90s, I was fairly doubtful about what we would see. And yet God has provided far more uh, than we could have ever hoped or asked for. What does that mean, mean for us in our daily lives? Not all of us are called to go as missionaries, but we are all called to make disciples. It doesn't matter whether you go as a missionary or not in a lot of ways, but you are called to make a disciple. 
I think one of the things that it means is that at some point in our lives, and Christ does this through his providence and through his patient love and his teaching of us, we begin to shift our perspective so that, that the kingdom of God becomes our first love and our first focus. A friend of mine who was one of my mentors in seminary uh, talks about the kingdom turn. He says, this is a matter of perspective. All who have made the kingdom turn are seated with Christ there in the heavenly places, and they see all the events in their lives and times through the lens and according to the agenda of Christ's kingdom. And that doesn't matter what your calling is to do. You, there's, there's valid callings to every vocation, every, everything in this world. But as a believer, at some point, you... you because of the work of Christ in our lives, we should begin to see everything about our lives in relationship to God's, God's kingdom. It also impacts how we pray for people. Um, I mentioned earlier that, that our youngest daughter has, has, has walked away from the faith. Um, many of you have friends and family who are lost. We've had family members that we prayed for for years. My Jewish family, my wife's uh, family, some of them were not believers. Uh, and when we pray for people, this idea that Christ's authority and Christ's presence is with us and is, in, is with our loved ones in their lives as well should impact how we, we pray. And John Piper puts it this way. He says, when I pray for people I love most who, who are lost or when I pray for the nations of the world, I don't ask God to make ineffectual suggestions to them. And so we are asking Christ to bring that presence and that power into the lives of the nations, but also in the lives of people that we know. It could be somebody you work with, a family member, whatever. And that should, that should impel you to pray in a way that's bold, that's asking God to make that difference that needs to happen in that person's life. It should spur us on to be eager and confident to gauge others to make disciple, whether that be evangelism or whether that be in, in the area of discipleship. Uh, the Barna study, I think Robin mentioned, is that 95% of evangelical Christians now have never shared the gospel with anyone else. Matter of fact, MTW, one of our training programs now is to, as we have new people coming on, we're finding that they've never They've never done any evangelism. They've never done any discipleship. Uh, there's a statistic that says about 40% of, of Christians don't feel they're qualified to do discipleship. Um, but knowing that Christ's uh, authority and, his, and his, that authority is present with us and at work whenever we encounter someone else should give us the courage and the encouragement that we need to engage with other people. Um, a friend of mine um, talks about the simplicity of, of both evangelism and discipleship being built around these God-given moments uh, or what are called kairos moments. In other words, you don't have to create the opening in someone's life in order to engage with them. Christ will create that opening and you simply do what God has called you to do. Um, in terms of discipleship, it's, it's simply a matter of encouraging others. If you are a believer, no matter how little you know, how short a time you've been a believer, you have what it takes to disciple someone else. And if you think about it this way, Persian talks about discipleship in kind of a very relational way. He says this, he says, uh, discipleship is something that we can all do. He says, work at helping others and especially strive to encourage them. 
Talk warmly to the young and anxious inquirer. Lovingly try to remove stumbling blocks out of their way. When you find a spark of grace in the heart of someone, kneel down and blow it into a flame. Leave the young believer to discover the roughness of the road by stages, but tell him of the strength that is found in God and the certainty of the promise and of the benefits of communion with Christ. And that's, we've all experienced that, so we can all share that. And that's basically what discipleship is. So I would encourage you, uh, don't let doubts, don't let your hesitancies uh, uh, discourage you from, from engaging. Uh, what you do is extremely important. Uh, uh, coming to a missions conference to hear you know, about the Great Commission is important. Giving your faith promise is important. Engaging to pray for missionaries is important. And maybe God is calling you to do something more. Maybe to reach out to your neighbors. Uh, maybe to be engaged in missions in some way. But understand <clears throat> that no matter how hesitant, inadequate, uh, what your gaps are in terms of your understanding about what that might mean, uh, Christ is there to walk with you through every step, both in his presence and in his power. And so I'd like to uh, just to close with some words of encouragement from a man named J.C. Ryle about the impact of Christ's presence and power in life. He says, Christians do this, lay hold on these words and keep them in mind. Christ is with us always. Christ is with us wherever we go. Christ came to be Emmanuel, God with us. And when he, when he first came into the world, he declares that he is ever Emmanuel with us when he comes to the end of his earthly ministry and is about to leave the world. So let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your presence and your power. Um, thank you that you do not... Uh, you're not limited, Lord, in your presence and in your power in our lives by our hesitancy, by our doubts, uh, by the inadequacies uh, that we all have. Lord, but that you call us to this great work of being part of building your kingdom, whether that be here with the lives of the neighbors or co-workers or in our own families. Lord, uh, we are given the great privilege of doing that together with you and in the authority and power that you have, Lord, and only you have. And so we ask that you would encourage our hearts, help us to follow you uh, in whatever you're calling us do in the making of disciples uh, throughout the nations. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.